All right, Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 18. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The Bible says that all men, all mankind, is like grass. And all of man's glory is like the flower of the field. And the grass withers and flowers fade away. But God's word stands forever. And so we're going to pray for, uh, we're going to pray uh, now for just a, a minute before we look at it more tonight. Father, we confess and agree with what your word has said. That, that we, uh, people... We come and go. But your word, you say, you say that your word lasts forever. And so, Father, if and since that's true, what we need more than anything is to hear from you. We need your words. And, Father, for that to happen, we need you to be here and teach them. So would you do exactly that? God, would you meet with us? Would you actually be here by your Holy Spirit in, in Elliston Chapel. And would you, would you work in us so that we might hear what you have to say and that you might do good and we might leave here changed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've got a, uh, I'm going to open with a sort of bizarrely timely illustration considering that I wrote this uh, uh, most of this back in the summer. Uh, 
Um, but uh, it's an illustration about Hurricane Katrina with, of course, Hurricane Florence bearing down on the East Coast. Um, but so most of you probably don't remember much, if anything, about Hurricane Katrina. Uh, but it, it came through Mississippi and Louisiana's uh, Gulf Coast in 2005. And it was absolutely devastating. It was, uh, it killed over 1,800 people. It did about $125 billion in damage. It is tied with Harvey. I don't know how you estimate that. And one of them's got to be the winner, right? But anyway, it's tied with Harvey for being the most uh, devastating in terms of damage done in U.S. history. New Orleans was the hardest hit, uh, all the flooding that occurred there. Uh, there, was, there was just destruction and, and death and chaos everywhere. It was truly amazing. Thousands and thousands of people were left homeless. And I can remember watching, we were all just sort of glued to the footage uh, and to the coverage of it all. And I can remember President Bush uh, making a trip down there uh, a couple few days after, after the event. He, he made a trip down there to sort of survey everything and to see it. And to talk with people that, uh, that had experienced this. And, you know, you, you know how it goes when a president does something like that. He was dressed a lot more casually than he uh, typically dresses. He's got his sleeves rolled up and... And he visits with lots of people. Uh, he does, he helps out. You know, he, he moves, moves some crates of water from here to there and pitches in and he listens to people. And he offers his, his encouragement as best he can. He offers his support. And he did that, you know, for, for a number of reasons. And, and some of them are probably obvious. But, you know, one of the reasons certainly is that it shows that it shows the people that your president cares about you. That, that, that he knows firsthand what you're going through. That he's not just sitting up in the, in the Oval Office and getting some reports about how bad it is. But that he actually, uh, he cares enough to show up and to be in the midst of it. Um, it gives the sense that he identifies with you, right? If, if you're one of these people affected by it, uh, that, he, that he identifies, he, he's, he's just like you are. He's going to come and walk around in the middle of it. And it also brings a sense of dignity, right, to the horror of the situation. Just the fact that the president of the United States would show up helps, in a sense, validate it. Um, and so if you were one of those ones that was devastated by Katrina, I'm sure that meant a lot to you. Right? It would mean a lot for the president to come and, and be there in, in, the, in your midst. But imagine what it would be like if the president said, if he made this announcement and he said, I'm not leaving New Orleans until every bit of this is fixed. And not only did he not leave New Orleans, not only did he move into New Orleans, but he lived exactly like one of those people that was affected. So he lived in a FEMA trailer. He ate food that was donated by people from all over the country. He wore clothes that, was, that were donated by other people. He was hot. He was uncomfortable. He didn't know what was going to happen next. 
And that's it. And that's how he lived. Until every bit of it was fixed. Can you imagine if, if a president would do that? that? That would be amazing. And I want to I pitch to you that that's actually just sort of a, a faint picture of what we see in this text about Jesus. If you've been with us, you know this semester we're going through the book of Hebrews. And our theme for the semester is better than you can imagine. Because the author of Hebrews, is, he's writing to a group of people that were, that were Christians, but they were tempted. They were being persecuted, evidently, and they were tempted to go back to their, uh, to their Hebrew or their, their Jewish roots. To sort of give up on Christianity and go back, because that would be easier. And we've said every week, they were essentially wrestling with the question, what's so great about Jesus anyway? Is Jesus really worth it? And so to those people, uh, this author writes this letter and he basically says, look, Jesus is better than you can imagine. Is he worth it? Absolutely, because Jesus is the supreme. He's the greatest thing that there is. And what we see tonight in our passage is that Jesus, even though he is God himself, that he took on human flesh and he became a man. He became a real person. And not only did he become a real person and and live a real life on earth, but he suffered. He suffered a lot. That Jesus came and and he basically said, I'm going to come, I'm going to live just like you in one sense. And I'm not leaving until it's fixed. He identifies with us in our suffering. And so tonight we're going to look at, I think this passage tells us at least three things, at least three reasons why Jesus did that. Why did Jesus suffer? Or what did his suffering do? Uh, And so those three things, uh, first, we're going to see that it's, that Jesus suffered to be the perfect human. Secondly, that Jesus suffered to beat Satan and death. And thirdly, Jesus suffered to help us when we suffer. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. And look, let me say on the front end, the whole book of Hebrews is actually really dense. In many ways, it can be a very tough uh, book to understand. Um, and this, this passage is, is a great example. It's just a dense passage. And so we're, we're not going to be able to answer all the questions, but I, I think we can make some sense of it. So I hope you stay with it, bear with us. So first, I want you to see that Jesus suffered to be the perfect human. And there's a ton of things that we could talk about here, but we've kind of got to dive straight into it. Look at verse 10. It says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Uh, That Jesus should be made perfect through suffering. And now look, we have to be clear to say that that doesn't mean that that Jesus was ever in any way imperfect. Uh, that he was not ever morally perfect. That's not what this means. Rather, what it means is that he had to, in living life, he had to prove himself to be perfect. That his life bore out his perfection. And so he had to live life 
as a human perfectly. Now, why would he have to do that? Well, the text says to bring many sons and daughters to glory, right? To, to bring us to salvation. But why would he have to be perfect to accomplish that? And the simple answer is because you and I can't be. We simply can't be. Uh, look at verses six, six through eight there. That's a quote from Psalm eight. And it's obviously about people. It's about mankind. And it's about how God created mankind to be a glorious creature. He created us to rule over the earth. And basically, he created us to be amazing and to be perfect. But the truth is that we're not. We're not because of our sin, right? As we come into this world bent against God, we all naturally, we, we all naturally don't want anything to do with him. We reject him. And because of that, because of rejecting God and our intended purpose and our intended design, we lose our glory. We're guilty. And because God is life, God is life itself, then rejecting God means that we, we plunge ourselves into death. Into, into separation from God, which is death. But, but God wants to save humanity. Even still. And so that means that God sort of faces this problem or, or dilemma. On the one hand, he wants to be because he just is just. Um, he wants to bring justice. Right? Wrong things must be righted. And at the same time, he wants to, to save us. He wants to be gracious. But, but we're the ones that are wrong and, and need judgment. And so he's sort of stuck on the horns of this dilemma. So what does he do? Well, what he does is amazing. He becomes... God, God takes on flesh and he becomes a person. He enters the story. And he does it so he can become a substitute for us. Because somebody has to pay the penalty. Right? Justice has to be, be met. And not only does the penalty have to get paid, but, but righteousness has to be earned. Somebody has to be perfect. And so God decides, I'm going to do that myself. I'm going to do both of those things myself. I'm going to show up and do it on our behalf. And that's actually why Jesus is called the founder of our salvation in our passage. We're going to come, come back to that in just a minute. But we can sort of sum it up like this. Because the problem is imperfect humanity, then the solution is perfect humanity. And so it's really a twofold concept here. So the first idea is that Jesus comes as a man and he suffers in, in just living life. Right? Especially in contrasted with his previous eternity of the glory that he's lived in, in heaven. Now, have you ever thought about that? That Jesus takes on, takes on a body and he comes and he, just, just the fact that he lives in this world means that he's going to suffer. Right? Jesus had never experienced tired. Had never experienced sick. And he comes and he willingly 
takes that on himself. And he suffers throughout life and he suffers perfectly. And we see in verse 18, look at verse 18, that he experiences suffering even through being tempted. So that means that Jesus goes through whatever, 33 years of living life and being tempted and, and suffering in that. And he does it perfectly. He's the perfect human. But the, the other aspect of this is that Jesus comes as a man and he suffers in death. Look at verse 9. Because of the suffering of death. Right? It's talking about Jesus' death on the cross. So having proven himself perfect through suffering in life, in a sense now what he gets for it is to suffer this terrible death. And why would he do that? Look at verse 9. So that he might taste death for everyone. And what did that accomplish? Verse 17 tells you to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation basically means to turn wrath away, to divert anger. So you get the idea. In other words, what Jesus accomplished by suffering in life and death is to do both and give me and you credit for it. Because you and I cannot live life perfectly. We can't face the sufferings of this world and, and, and live in it and, and come out perfect at all. Far from it. And so Jesus does it himself. He accomplishes it and he, he gives it to us. And he gives us credit for his death. All the wrong things that we deserve death for. Jesus says, I'm going to take that on me. And I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to weather all of that. And you're going to get credit for it. He acts as our representative in that. And, and the good news of it all is that he did it. That you and I don't have to do it. Uh, this is the whole founder of our salvation idea. Right? I said we'd come back to it. The word founder is probably uh, maybe better translated, or at least the idea is sort of trailblazer or pioneer. He's the trailblazer of faith. That he, Jesus goes first and he does it for us. That he accomplishes those things. A perfect life. And punishment done away with. So in other words, he doesn't just demonstrate how to do it and say like, okay, all right, you got it. See how that's supposed to go? I showed you what to do. So all right, now that's, that's what you do. That he actually did it. He's the trailblazer in that way. It made me think of this story. Uh, when I, my, I think after my, so, or my sophomore year of college for spring break, uh, I, went, I went backpacking, I think, every year, spring break, when I was in college. And in the midst of it, always thought, why did I not go to the beach like all my friends? But that's what I did. And one, one spring break, I went uh, on the Appalachian Trail. And I was going with two other guys. And one of them was a thru-hiker, which means that he, uh, he had actually done the first. So it's from Georgia to Maine. Okay, so it's long. He had done the first half of it. And had to come off the trail. And now he was going to go back and finish. So me and this other guy were going to go with him. 
and like hike for a week with him and then let him walk to Maine while we went home. And so we start hiking for a couple of, uh, couple of days, but then we ran into a problem. And the problem was that there had been just terrible ice storms in this area over the, uh, you know, the previous months, and the trail was just destroyed. And so we had been hiking all day, and now we get to this part of the trail where we actually don't know where the trail goes anymore. There's just trees and branches, and it's just, it's just a you know, mess and it's, now it's dark, it's super cold, and we don't know where to go. I don't know where to go. So the one guy, the through hiker, the guy that's going to go all the way, he might be the, like the manliest man I've ever met. Okay, He was several years older than us, and the dude was just tough and like built for this stuff. Me and my friend, like we were worthless. Like I was, I was seriously wondering, like, are, are we going to make it? And this guy, Cole... He does the whole thing. He leads. And, but he doesn't just lead like, all right, guys, follow me. This is the path. He finds the path. He clears the path. He breaks the branches. He moves the stuff. Because I'm telling you, like, we were done. Like, I'm dehydrated. And yeah, it had been a long day. But he does the whole thing himself. So he, did, he led the way, but he didn't just lead. He, in a sense, accomplished the trail, right? Hopefully you get the idea. It's just a little bit of a taste in a much bigger way of what Jesus has done for us. By becoming a man and suffering, he did all the work and we get to just take it. All right, but we've got to keep moving. We've got to move quicker. Uh, the second thing that we see from this passage is that Jesus suffered to beat Satan and death. So why did Jesus become man and suffer? We'll look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Right? Jesus' suffering in death, it destroyed the devil and it saved us from slavery. And again, it's dense, right? There's a lot here, but I think we can pick it apart a little bit. So let's start with the concept of people being in lifelong slavery because of the fear of death. What does that mean? Well, like we said, we're all naturally sinners, right? We've rejected God, and that means that we're all bound for death. We're all bound for physical death. It's inevitable, We're all naturally, um, spiritually experience spiritual death. We're all heading that direction. It's inevitable. But But we don't want it. Right? We were built for more than that. But since it's inevitable, we're we're always working against it, but it's fruitless working. So in that sense, we're slaves to it. We're so afraid that we're going to die either physically or just, you know, experiencing spiritual death, right? Like the death of just who we are. We're so afraid of it, but we can, and so we're always working against it. But it never, it's never going to fix. We can't fix it. So it, we're stuck. We're slaves to it. Right? We, we try to find life a million different ways. 
You know, whether it's, we talk about this all the time through our grades or through friends or boyfriend or girlfriend, through sex or money or, you know, pick, pick it, right? We're trying to find life, but it doesn't work. So we're slaves to it. And since the devil wants nothing more than to destroy humanity, what, what Satan does, what the devil does, is he loves to point people to death any way he can. And so that's the sense in which he has the power of death. He uses it as a weapon against people. Um, The the Greek word for uh, devil, diablos, uh, it, it literally means the accuser. What Satan does, he loves to accuse people, to point people, uh, to, to point out their death and how they're dying, um, where they've gone wrong, how screwed up they are. All right, so there's this really amazing story in Zechariah. Zechariah 3, when was the last time you read Zechariah, right? All right, and so the story is that Joshua, the high priest at the time, shows up before God and in God's presence. So he's the high priest. But he's, wearing, he's covered in, uh, the text says, filthy garments. But that means he's covered in either human or animal waste. So think about that. He's the high priest, right? He's the embodiment of God's people, right? The representative. And he's standing in front of God, covered in, to put it quite crassly and frankly, crap. In front of the Holy One. And the text says that, uh, oh yeah, I had this note there. It's, it's the, um, you know, the dream where you go to school in your underwear or naked or something. That you're somewhere you shouldn't be, less than clothed, right? You know that feeling, that, that dream. It's that like times a thousand, right? And the text says that Satan is there accusing him, right? Can you, I mean, can you picture that? It would be so easy, right? It's a softball. Look at you. Look, you're the high priest and you're covered in crap. And you're right in front of God. Great work, right? He loves to accuse. And I'm sure that we can identify with that to some degree, right? But this says that Jesus destroyed the devil. And the idea of the Greek word is, it's really that he, he robbed him of his power. That he took his power away from him. So how did he do that? Well, Jesus, by his death, by Jesus' death, he takes the power of death away from, from Satan. Because if what Satan likes to do is to point to death and to how screwed up you are and look... Look how spiritually dead you are. Look how jacked up your life is. Look where you're heading. Jesus takes that weapon away from him. And so that Satan's accusations don't have power anymore. Uh, It made me think of this story, and I don't know if this is a good one or not, but when we lived in Louisville, uh, at the time, the uh, basketball coach uh, at UofL was Rick Pitino, and he was actually being blackmailed by a woman uh, that he had had an affair with. And so she comes to him, you know, privately and says, I'm going to, she tries to extort him for money. I'm going to go public with all this uh, if you don't pay me. And so what does he do? Right? She's got this power over him. There's this, this threat. And so what he decides to do 
is go public with it. He decides to go public with it himself. And he goes, in fact, ends up going to the FBI and reporting this woman and, and has her arrested and she went to jail for extortion. And now it's, it's, it's a little dangerous, right, making this parallel. But do you see what he did, right? The, the power over him was this allegation. And she could wield that against him until he took it away from her. He said, all right, I'm going to do the one thing that you would never expect and say, yep, you know what, that's true. And he goes public. And now all of a sudden, he took her weapon. There's, there's nothing left. You don't have anything to accuse me of. And again, it's not a perfect illustration, but because Jesus has taken all of your sin and he's done away with death, then Satan has nothing left to accuse you of. There's nothing left. He doesn't have that power anymore. The story, uh, the story in Zechariah ends, uh, it's, it's beautiful. It ends, right, Satan's accusing him. And God essentially says uh, uh, to and through the angels, take those dirty clothes off of him and put beautiful clothes on him. So you get the picture. Satan, like, look at yourself. And now what? He's got nothing. Because of what God had done. He does the same for us, right? And we've talked about this before, but it means that when you feel those accusations rise up, right, they sort of agree with Satan, and they, and they point at you and they say, maybe they come from the outside, maybe they come from inside you. And it says, you know you're such a whatever. You're such a loser. How could God ever love somebody like you? With what you've done? You're such a freak. You're such a liar. Who would ever love you? Right? You can know that those accusations, if you're in Christ, those accusations, they're robbed of their power. Because you can say, you know what? Those were true of me. And in a sense, they are true of me, even still. But Jesus did away with them. That death, his death is my death. When you feel those accusations rise up and say, you're nothing but a loser. Look how ugly you are. And you're tempted to fear the death of being rejected. Right? Who, who would ever date somebody that looks like me? Who would, ever, who would ever be with somebody that does what I do? And when you see that you're a slave to it, right? the beauty is that you get to see that the power is robbed. Because God loves you and he will never reject you because Jesus took your rejection. All right, thirdly, finally, and, and incredibly quickly, uh, we've got to see this last thought that Jesus suffered to help us when we suffer. Uh, look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And look, I think this one is pretty straightforward and, and in so many ways really simple, but so beautiful. And the simple idea is that because Jesus has suffered, he knows what it's like. And because he knows what it's like, he can help us when we suffer because he gets it. He knows how to help. Uh, when we go through temptation, when we go through suffering, 
Jesus has been there. He's lived it. Uh, you know, go back to President Bush. Um, for the next hurricane, had another hurricane come along, if he had done those things, if he had lived in the midst of it, right, you, get, you get the picture. All right, he, he knows exactly how to talk to those people. He knows exactly how to help somebody suffering. Um, Jesus, Jesus experienced temptation to the highest degree. And I get that might be hard to wrap our minds around, but right, where do you see it? You see it uh, right after he was baptized in Matthew 4. He goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan himself. And those temptations all were along a common thread of basically Satan was the same as any temptation even that we face. And he's basically tempting him by saying, Jesus, you don't need to suffer. Right? God loves you, right? Or, or does he? Because if God really loved you, why would you suffer? Because if he loved you, he, would, he wouldn't make you suffer, Right? And at its core, it's the same thing we face. We see Jesus face it again uh, very vividly in Matthew 16. He tells his disciples, look, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die as the Christ. And Peter, his one of, if not his best friend in the world, says that will never happen. You, you will not suffer. And what does Jesus say to him? He calls him Satan, right? He's being tempted. And so Jesus has experienced that temptation and he knows what, it like, what it's like. So that means that, look, for me and you, it means Jesus gets it. It's so easy to think that, that God, Jesus, is sort of looking at us when we face suffering and temptation. It, almost like, like he's rolled this out for us and like, all right, yeah, so are we going to act right? Are we going to choose right or wrong? With this sort of condescending, you know, uh, just, just waiting to see, like, make sure we do the right thing. And that's not the picture. The picture is of, is of a Savior, of a God that gets it. That knows that life can be hard. And sometimes can be unimaginably hard. Jesus gets it. And Jesus can help. He knows how to help. And we're going to end with this thought. Look at, how, how does Jesus help us when we suffer? It look, it, it, works this way out in a million different ways. But I think there is an overarching idea. And we actually see it in this passage. Um, He knows that that the one thing that he gives us that helps us, it's the one thing that helped him. What was it? Right before he was tempted in the wilderness, what happened? Well, he was baptized. And what happened in his baptism? God the Father showed up and and he spoke and he said, you are my son. And I'm really pleased with you. And then he goes and faces temptation. And then you fast forward to the temptation he faced with with Peter, right? You should never suffer. And what's the next thing that happens? The next thing that happens, uh, Matthew uh, 17. He goes up on the mount, Mount of Transfiguration. And God's voice shows up again. And it says, you are my son. And I'm really pleased with you. Look, if G- what Jesus needed to hear was his father say, I love you. And you make me happy. It's what every kid wants to hear. It's what we all want to hear. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us. I'm going to end with showing it to you in this passage. 
Look at verses 11 through 13. Uh, There's three quotes from the Old Testament that show that Jesus became a real man and he identified with us so that he could bring salvation and bring us into the family. Look at verse 11. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's proud to call you his brother or sister. And what does he give us? Um, He points us to the same love. I will tell of your name, God. I will tell them of your name to my brothers. Jesus wants you to hear that God loves you and he, you make him happy. That's what he brings. That's why he came to suffer and die. And that's why he's better than we can imagine. And that's an invitation to you. And let me pray for us. Father, uh, we pray that you would help us to believe that. Um, Thank you for that reality. And that Jesus, we love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.